everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're coming to an end in a series called Why Church Discipline, where we're talking about what the church should do when followers of Jesus don't act like Jesus. Today, we're talking about what to do when you're the one who's not acting like Jesus. Now, let's start with some statistics. David Crary reported on the results of an important research project. The Josephson Institute is a Los Angeles-based ethics organization, and they did a character survey of nearly 30,000 students from 100 randomly selected high schools in the U.S. When the results were tabulated, they found that 64% of students said that they had cheated on a test in the past year. 30% had stolen from a store. 42% said they would lie to save money. And 83% said that they had lied to their parents about something significant. If you're keeping track, that's a near failing grade on four of the Ten Commandments already, and we haven't even touched on the harder ones, like having no other gods and not coveting. Despite their admissions of guilt, 93% of the students said that they were satisfied with their personal ethics and character. And 77% of them said, I'm better than most people I know. Now, in case you're thinking this is a trouble with those young people message, it's quite the opposite. I find that teens often have more humility in their assessment of themselves than us older people. As time goes on, we tend to become more stubborn about our sins and more defensive of the way we are. The reason I bring all of this up is that we're in a series on church discipline, where we've been saying that the church has a responsibility to deal with its own sin. There are times when we need to graciously confront one another about the things we've said or done. If you're one of the 93% who's satisfied with your personal ethics and character, though, that's probably not going to go over too well. If you're one of the 77% of people who thinks that you're better than most people, and someone points out a sin that you don't see or you don't think is a problem, that's going to end badly. Today's passage helps by giving motivation. It shows us what we lose when we refuse to let go of our sin. It helps us undo some of the mental gymnastics that we do when we're tempted to justify behavior that we know is wrong. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of God. Now, this sounds like a hard passage, but it's intended as a guardrail for you. If a guardrail is going to help you, it has to be hard, not flimsy. The warnings of this passage may just save your life one day. So let's listen and hear God speak. The first warning this passage gives is that if you won't let go of your sin, you forfeit salvation. The gospel promises that God will save all who come to him in repentance. But people who refuse to repent are choosing their sin over Jesus. Jesus doesn't justify people who continue to justify themselves. So if you won't let go of your sin, you forfeit salvation. Now, Paul starts in verse 9 with a question. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There were people in the church at Corinth who didn't, in fact, know that. They had only heard the forgiveness part of the gospel. Today, that's all the more true. People hear what they want to hear. They hear the part that says that Jesus forgives our sin, and he does. But only if we recognize it as sin. Only if we turn from it because it's sin. The very next phrase says, do not be deceived. Because there's a lie that says you can have heaven and your sin. And you can't. If you're not willing to let go of your sin, you've chosen sides. Jesus came to bring life, but if you refuse to let go of your sin, what you're saying to Jesus is, this is my life. This is the way I want to go. And you can go that way, but that way doesn't lead to heaven. Let me read the rest of verse 9 and 10. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to notice that this isn't a list of sins. It's a list of sinners. There's no sin that disqualifies you from heaven, but habitual sin that's accepted and even defended will. Let's make sure that we've heard the list. It isn't exhaustive, but it gives us enough of a start for us to fill in the blanks. Four of the ten terms that Paul uses refer to sexual sin. Two heterosexual and two homosexual. Sexual immorality and adultery cover the sexual sins of single and married people. In Roman society, having sexual partners outside of marriage was as common as speeding and just as acceptable. Now, pornography in its modern sense hadn't been developed yet, but the word for sexually immoral was pornos and is obviously where we get our modern word. It covers the full range of sexual sins outside of the covenant of marriage. The phrase, men who practice homosexuality, actually translates two Greek terms referring to the active and passive partners in homosexual relations. Again, this was common and accepted in Corinth, but out of bounds to God and his design for human sexuality. Now, in addition to the four sexual sins that are listed, there are five terms describing various kinds of greed. There are people who steal, people who constantly have to have more, people who overdo it with alcohol, people who are verbally abusive, and those who use dishonesty 
to get what they want. You can almost picture Paul sitting down with someone and saying, we really need to talk about your attitude toward money. Jesus calls us to be a generous people. And the person is defiant. I'm committed to Jesus, but you mind your own business when it comes to my finances. God's word is clear. You're not committed to Jesus if you're also committed to your greed. Now, there's one last term that's not related to sexuality or greed. It's the sin of idolatry, putting something before God. In a sense, it drives all the other sins. When your beliefs about God turn from God's word, it's only a matter of time before your behavior will do the same. We live in a world where it says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But the Bible says religious sin leads to moral sin. But again, the message of this passage isn't just try not to do these sins. It's addressing the lie that says you can have heaven without letting go of your sin. And you can't. That's like a groom walking down the aisle with his mistress and expressing his vows to the bride. The hope of this passage is in verse 11, though. Because just as it's a lie that you can have heaven and your sin, there's another opposite lie that says you can't have heaven if you've sinned. But anyone who's willing to repent can receive forgiveness. Here, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Of course, there were people in Corinth who had been caught up in the sexual sins and the greed of their culture. But they had turned from those sins to Jesus. That doesn't mean they didn't struggle anymore. But they were still, but they weren't still clinging to their sins. They weren't still defending their sins or justifying them. Now, maybe the Holy Spirit's been trying to convince you of an area of sin in your life. Or maybe a friend has expressed concern to you. And we all struggle. We all face temptation. We feel its pull in different ways and we stumble. But holding on isn't okay. If you won't let go of your sin, you forfeit salvation. If you won't let go of your sin, you also invite addiction. Our commitment to sin doesn't just impact our eternity, it affects us now. Sin always takes us farther than we want to go. And that controlling influence is one of the things we should fear. If you won't let go of your sin, you invite addiction. Now, starting in verse 12, Paul deals with the half-truths that the Corinthians were dealing with. They had a slogan that Paul quotes twice in verse 12. They like to say, all things are lawful for me. It was a statement of their freedom. If Jesus had forgiven their sins, maybe they didn't have to worry about right and wrong anymore. But Jesus has given us a freedom from sin, not a freedom to sin. Paul corrects their thinking in a couple of ways. He says, first of all, in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Again, quoting their, their slogan, but not all things are helpful. He's reminding them to think through what sin leads to. Adam and Eve were just thinking about how the fruit would taste. They didn't think through how it would rob their innocence and damage their relationship with God and with each other. I'm the same. When I'm standing in front of the fridge, I'm thinking about what that cake will taste like, not, like, not what it will feel like in my stomach an hour later. 
Before you do something, it's worth asking whether it's going to help you or not. Are you going to feel glad about your decision once the moment has passed? As we ask that question, one of the consequences that we often ignore is the addictive power of sin. That's where Paul turns in the second half of the verse. Here he says, all things are lawful for me. Again, quoting their slogan, but I will not be dominated by anything. It's one of the characteristics of sin that it first tempts us, then seeks to control us. Nobody, for instance, sets out to try to be an alcoholic. First, you're tempted by the high that alcohol can give you. Then you want more. Then it takes more to feel what you wanted to feel. And eventually, you can't get by without it. The alcohol is in control. But it's like that with all sin. It seeks to take over. And so when you resist temptation, you're not only resisting that act, you're closing the door on a potential addiction. Now, the Corinthians had another slogan that Paul quotes in verse 13. That was, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The point they were making wasn't actually about food. They were saying, sex is like any other appetite. It needs to be satisfied. It's just a function of the body. It's natural. Well, Scott Peck is a great quote from The Road Less Travel that you should remember anytime that voice in your head is telling you that sin is natural. He wrote this, calling it natural doesn't mean it's essential or beneficial or unchangeable behavior. It's also natural to defecate in our pants and never brush our teeth. Yet we teach ourselves to do the unnatural until the unnatural itself becomes second nature. Now, one of the other implications of the Corinthian slogan was that our bodies don't have anything to do with our faith. But the opposite is true. In verse 13, Paul responds by saying that our bodies are for the Lord. How we treat our bodies is a reflection of our faith. Let's face it. With your body, you can demonstrate patience contentment, discipline, and self-control. But your body can also advertise the opposite of those qualities. And if we needed any convincing that how we treat our bodies is important to God, in verse 14, Paul says, look at the resurrection. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're not just going to be floating around as spirits for all eternity. God's going to raise our bodies and transform them. Our bodies matter to God. How we treat them matters to God. And so we need to shut the doors on addiction rather than opening. Now, so far we said, if you won't let go of your sin, you forfeit salvation and you invite addiction. Finally, Paul warns that if you won't let go of your sin, you bind your soul. The decisions that we make to either justify our sin or turn from it affect us at a far deeper level than we're typically aware. They take hold in our spirit and shape us at our core. If you won't let go of your sin, you bind your soul. Now, Paul begins with the implications of the decision to trust in Jesus. In verse 15, he asks, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The word for member here is just body part. When you trust in Jesus, you become a part of him. In verse 17, it's even deeper. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
we become connected with Jesus at the deepest part of who we are. That's also what he's describing in verse 19 when he asks, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Putting your faith in Jesus isn't just a question of which holidays you're going to celebrate and which holy book you're going to read. You're joining yourself to him. It's like you're beginning a three-legged race with Jesus. You're connected. Now watch how he turns this principle on its head in verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. What's going on here, right? The last bit about the two becoming one flesh is a verse that we read at weddings. Why is Paul quoting it in relation to a prostitute? It's because sex is never just physical. It's like a glue that bonds us to someone at a deeper level. But here's the problem. Now it's like you've entered into two three-legged races with different people at the same time. And so if the person you're intimate with isn't walking in step with Jesus, you're going to be pulled in different directions. That's why verse 18 warns, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The message is flee. Get away from it. Don't flirt with it. Don't fantasize about it. Don't go anywhere near it. But not because God is down on sex. Not because sex is dirty. It's because it's more than physical. It affects you intimately, even in the most impersonal and unattached forms. God designed it as a glue for marriage. And so when it's used outside of marriage, it drags us in directions that are opposed to him. It binds our soul. And that's a problem because Jesus wants that kind of bond with us. Faith in Jesus can't just be a casual encounter. If it's real, it's exclusive. If it's real, it's the deepest part of who we are connected to Jesus for life. Now, we said that 93% of people are satisfied with their personal ethics and character. And 77% of people think that they're better than most people they know. I wonder if you're one of them. I need to ask myself if I'm one of them. Because if we are, and we hear a message like this from the Bible, our response is going to be to deflect. If someone comes and tries to speak to us about our sin, we'll become defensive. Somehow we'll make it about them and not about us. And when that happens, accountability fails and church discipline fails. Hear God's warnings about what's at stake when you won't let go of your sin. Is there something that God has been trying to get your attention about? Is there an area of your life that you've kept off limits from God and his will? Are people able to approach you without you getting your back up? This particular passage has been focused on our sexuality, our greed, and idolatry. If there's impurity in your life, or if you've given in to the cravings for more, or if you know that you're putting something or someone in the place that God deserves, acknowledge it as sin. Cling to the hope that there is in Jesus. As someone has said, there's only one person who has ever given a direct promise of heaven in the scriptures, and he was a thief. So there's nothing that God can't save you from. 
if you're willing to let it go. But you do need to let it go. You can't have heaven and your sin. If you've turned to Jesus, it's because you were sick of your sin. It's because you wanted to be free of it. Don't open the door to sin's addiction in your life again. Don't give room to the control that sin craves. Now, maybe the issue for you is that you've seen religion as a casual thing. You thought that the Bible was good for a little inspiration and morality. Jesus wants more than that. When you put your trust in him, you become joined to him. God comes into your life by the Holy Spirit and he fills you. He breathes life and power into you. He's a God who promises to be with you and never forsake you. He can be your hope and your strength, your comfort and your joy. Through faith, turn your back on sin and call him Lord and Savior. Invite him in and let him lead the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are defensive. We like to justify ourselves. We think that we're okay. And when your word or other people point out our blind spots, they put their finger on our sin. We want to make it about them, and not about us. Give us a humility, Father, to acknowledge the sin in our lives and to know that Jesus Christ leads us somewhere better. To believe that the life that he died to provide for us is better than any sin that he might call us to give up. Father, if there is anyone who has not turned to you, give them the courage to come and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today, to receive your forgiveness and to be joined to Christ, filled with your spirit, and empowered to walk in a new direction, to live in a new life. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. I hope this message has given you some guardrails to protect you when you're tempted to hold on to your sin. If you won't let go of your sin, you forfeit salvation, invite addiction, and bind your soul. But Jesus wants you to be free. Come to him today. If today's talk has stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, leave a comment, share the link, and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.